You are tuning in to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. After you finish listening to it, why not take a moment to listen to one of the most recent episodes? I'm sure you'll enjoy it. This is Tommy's Outdoors 69. And what a great pleasure to have on the podcast Professor Adam Hart once again uh, and talk about wildlife conservation once again. But this time, the angle is the impact of COVID-19 on wildlife conservation. As we know, um, tourism was impacted and uh, hunting and fishing is, uh, in, in many cases, a branch of tourism that funds wildlife conservation. So obviously, uh, worldwide travel bans has an impact on wildlife conservation and uh, on the flow of funds. To conservation organizations and uh, and and whatnot, so uh, so we decided to get together and discuss that subject. Uh, and also, as you probably know from the previous episode of the podcast, I am quite interested in connection between coronavirus outbreak and biodiversity loss. Um, that's something that kind of. Uh, it's still in the back of my head, and I'm trying to explore that issue. So I took my I took that opportunity and and briefly spoke with Adam about this um, as well on a podcast. So that's a, a little bit shorter episode this time, but uh, nevertheless very informative, and I sincerely hope you will enjoy it. So uh, without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Professor Adam Hart. Adam, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Tommy. I think you're. This is uh, you're you're quickest one of the guests. We're quickest to return. I had a guest who were on the <laughs> podcast twice, uh, but it was usually like a year or eight months, and you're back just in just a matter of weeks. But I guess there is a, a lot of stuff that are uh, pretty current and relevant to the current situation. Obviously, for people who are going to be listening to this podcast uh, in you know a couple of mon- months' time, uh, we are right now in a, let's say, middle of a, of a COVID uh, emergency. So uh, there's a few things related to really uh, touching on what we discussed previously uh, with relation to wildlife and, and, and uh, conservation and what is the impact of, of that situation, of COVID situation and the wildlife and conservation. But before we go there, you have a book coming. Uh, I do. It, yeah, it's, uh, it's called Unfit for Purpose. And it is immensely interesting to me because this is a subject that I, I, I discussed a lot with a lot of my friends and, and is very interesting to me for various reasons. Would you mind to give our listeners a uh, quick, um, quick uh, information about what, what the book is about? And obviously, it's, it's available for pre-order, so everybody should go and pre-order it now. 
Yeah, sure. Um, it's it's basically yeah, it's called unfit for purpose, and the idea is that in in the last almost in the last generation, in some cases actually in the last ten years, we've kind of ruthlessly made this this modern world for ourselves, but 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 we we don't function well in it, and and it's almost because our evolutionary heritage, if you like, our, our, our biological history, is is in conflict with the situation that we have now, and we we can follow it through through some very basic things. So, for example, you know the the classic example is well, we we spend all our lives slouching and sitting down to end up with back problems. Yeah. Okay. Okay, but but I was actually exploring some much more, I think, interesting and unusual examples. So um, looking, for example, at things like our belief in fake news and and why we're so keen to to sort of believe false information. Actually, you can trace a lot of that back to some of the evolutionary sort of history that we have in terms of developing societies. Um, I look at things like obesity, which is a really interesting story. Actually, the kind of classic story is that oh, we get fat because we're famine adapted, and and we now live in a time of plenty, so we just keep piling on the pounds. Actually, that isn't really supported by by much evidence away from the South Pacific. And there's a whole load of really interesting stories that develop around that to look at, at predation and things like that. Um, I look at stress, which of course is a big problem in the modern world, but but a massive lifesaver. That's a bit. That's a big. That's a big one, and especially everybody uh, who are involved in any sort of a leadership training and anything like that. So essentially, who people who need to take care of their subordinates in the workplace. Uh, this is kind of common theme that stress and the, all the hormonal response of our body is really well not fit for purpose yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, what's going really on right now it's it's a really good response you know back back in the day when 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 we had big stresses that were immediately life threatening but of course as we started to develop i mean you can almost probably trace this back to the beginning of sort of things like agriculture which had a huge effect on our lives um, and a huge effect on our, our physical sort of being as well. Um, you know, the, the evolution of, of agriculture was really significant. And, and from that point, we started to have city states. We changed the way that we lived from a way that we'd adapted for to this new way. Now, we did adapt to some of those things. The fact that we can eat, um, drink milk, for example, is a great evolutionary adaptation, um, not found throughout throughout the world actually um almost in a minority in fact um and that's another interesting kind of chapter the, this idea of dietary intolerances so we we can evolve to adapt to our new environment but of course these are quite slow responses and what we've seen over the last sort of century or so is a huge change in in the way that we live and you know we have day-to-day -day stresses that that people didn't have even five or ten years ago you know social media stresses um work life balance the the stress of simply having everyone else judging what we're doing all the time and all of these things linked together Really neatly, and, and that actually leads on in the book to a chapter talking about social networks. So the idea of online lives, you know, our online life. I mean, that's kind of what we're doing now, right? This is a podcast. I mean, we're speaking to each other, but it will then exist online. We'll be talking about it on Twitter. You know, these sorts of things. Ten years ago, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, would have been you know, pie in the sky. So we, we've changed the way that we live so dramatically, and it's interesting to see how that kind of conflicts with our evolutionary background. And then I talk about things like gut bacteria. Um, addiction, which is kind of uh, important, um, particularly in the modern world, and also discuss violence um, in its evolutionary context. You know, what, what are, as a species, are we unusually violent? It turns out actually we, we, we are. Um, but equally, we're not the only species that kills each other. Um, mm -hmm. That's very wide. Do you think important. we are violent as a species? Um, we we are if you look at it phylogenetically. So if you look at us in relation to um, other animals that we are related to, and you look across the kind of piece, then um, we are we are violent. Um, but equally, we come from a very violent lineage. Um, the primates are 
are actually quite quite violent to each other. And and part of that is because they're they're social. Um, in a lot of cases, they live they live in groups. They're also highly territorial, which is another big factor. And of course, for us, you know, we're kind of quite well put together if we want to be violent. Really, where we, we've got we've got hands that make fists. There's a really interesting section in the book where I talk about so, so somebody's got the hypothesis that actually, you know, the fist is is, is basically sort of the, the way our hands are done is, is made for hitting. Not a lot of support for it, but it brings up some interesting stories. Um, we've got arms and you know legs and feet and elbows and knees where we're relatively strong. Um, a lot of people are very keen on sort of putting us down as, a, as an animal, but actually when you think about it, we're we're pretty well put together. We're fa- we're, we're good all rounders. We're fast. We're strong. You know we've got we've got hands. So we are kind of we are kind of moving in that direction. And and if you look at, at our history. Yeah, violence has, has come and gone. And, and violence is actually one of the harder chapters to write for this because there are so many competing hypotheses. Uh, um, you can find good support for the idea that we are more violent than we used to be, that we're less violent than we used to be, that we're exactly the level of violence that you would expect, that modern society has helped us to become less violent, or that modern society has made us more violent. Okay. Um, so it's really, really interesting to try and unpick some of these things. And of course, to look at the influence of media on violence too, which... I find really interesting because people still present that as being quite controversial. And actually, when you look through the literature, it's really not controversial at all that sort of monkey see, monkey do. Um, what's controversial, I suppose, is the extent to which it to which it influences us and how we can um, how we can sort of explain certain patterns that we see. But but yeah, so it's it's it, it started off really as a kind of quite a biological book but obviously as these things evolve you know we, we start talking about all kinds of things from psychological theories to the development of agriculture politics um all kinds of bits and pieces as is usually the case when we're chatting as well of course because very few things operate in, in a nice clean vacuum yeah, so it yeah. always drags everything else in <laughs> i I, can't, I i really can't wait to read that book and and perhaps we we do yet another podcast once the book is out and and kind of uh discuss that because that, that's super interesting tell us where where are the book is coming out uh it's coming out in early june i think june the 11th uh if you it's, it's on amazon actually um if you search for unfit for purpose uh you'll find it you can pre-order it there you can also pre-order it from the publishers which is bloomsbury um so yeah you can you can do all the pre-order and then it'll be out well if we're allowed to go to bookshops by june who knows how the world will be in a few months it's hard to believe how much it's changed in the last couple of weeks but um assuming that things are relatively back to normal you may even be able to go into a bookshop and buy it by june as well Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Cool. Okay, so let's get to the kind of like a main subject really uh, of this podcast. And uh, we're going back to a little bit to the the subject of the previous one, where we talked in in length about wildlife, wildlife conservation. And um, now, what is the impact of of the the uh, COVID uh, emergency uh, pandemic? on wildlife and most obvious one would be i think the how tourism is impacted or in general movement of people is impacted and would that be the the biggest hit on on, on wildlife um, yeah possibly so it's if we cast our minds back to when the foot and mouth um, outbreak happened and we, we ended up people not being able to visit the countryside actually what we saw here in the uk was was some considerable benefits actually for a number of species because people weren't disturbing them and we've already seen lots of, of press reports and media reports now about you know wildlife coming into our towns um people are reporting hearing more birds and and actually i i yeah, it's purely anecdotal, but I went for a walk nearby where where I live, and I've never seen. I saw muntjac deer and roe deer prints 
in areas far, far closer to, to the road than I've ever seen them before. Um, and I know that that area is well used by dog walkers. And yet I could see from the prints on the ground that there have been far fewer dog walkers around. So, you know, we, we do get these these benefits which are which are being widely reported but but far more subtle and i'm sure will be reported more and more as this goes on are the negative effects and and the negative effects really there'll be no surprise to us to to realize the economic um predominantly at the moment and and you're right tourism is a big problem so if you're running um as is the case where i'm mostly going to be talking about southern africa but you know this this sort of goes across the piece if you're running a a system whereby you get your funding to fund conservation action so to fund habitat protection to fund people that work for you to fund the sort of land improvements that you need to do and fencing and anti-poaching and all this kind of stuff if you're funding that from let, let's call it tourism in the round um for now um then that tap was basically turned off extremely abruptly um it's difficult at the moment because everything's happening. There's so many things happening so quickly. It's very hard sometimes to get a, a, a handle on just how rapidly all this has happened. Um, but for example, South Africa bought in a, a travel ban just a couple of weeks ago. Um, they're in the middle of a three-week lockdown now. I think they're about 10 days through at the moment. Um, the, the travel ban was put in place about five days before that. You know, that's only two weeks before. And, and suddenly no tourist will go to South Africa. I mean, you're not allowed. If you're from the UK, you can't fly there. It's as simple as that. They're not, they're not letting us in. Um, um, so their financial model is, is based on overseas people coming in and, and predominantly in those areas, they're talking about people doing ecotourism. And also, of course, as we discussed in the previous um, program in many countries, South Africa, Namibia, um, Zimbabwe, Zambia, they're also having people coming in for hunting and those have also stopped. Uh, actually, it, it appears from, from early reports that potentially hunters were a bit slower to withdraw than tourists. Um, so mm-hmm. some ecotourists had withdrawn before these travel bans. I mean, the writing was on the wall for a few weeks. Yeah. Um, but now there is there is no overseas money coming in. And, and that's going to have and it is already having an effect. It, it, the primary effect it's probably going to have initially, and certainly what people are telling me in, in areas of South Africa is, is an increase in poaching and an increase in poaching of two kinds, really. The first kind mm. is, is bushmeat poaching. Yeah. So this is this is people um, going in, uh, illegally entering, if you like, um, areas or illegally taking from those areas um, species for meat. Now, that's increasing for a couple of reasons. One, obviously, if people are in lockdown around and they can't get to shops and they've, you know, they're, they're perhaps economically um disadvantaged by that which is going to be the case then then they will turn to alternative means just as you or i would you know there's no difference if i if i had nothing in my freezer now and my kids were hungry i'd have to go out and oh and find something abso- to eat right abso- absolutely so, we were we were saying that that uh, I, i'm lucky enough to can go 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 fishing uh, nearby because it's very close to my house so that was exactly my thought if i catch the fish that fish is coming back with me you know <laughs> i'm, I'm catching yeah. release angler but this time no i'm gonna take it with me and that goes to the freezer so absolutely right and and that's and that's what we're finding and and so that's the bushmeat side of things and and i think sometimes we have a slightly romantic kind of illusion of poaching as i think possibly because of sort of um you know literature of the uk and or english language literature but but actually most of this poaching is quite is quite brutal um Mm. they will go in with dogs and and snaring is very very common so Mm -hmm. capable of removing really without any selectivity 
fairly large numbers of individuals in quite an, uh, an aggressive and, and so and so I, I have a question because th- does it not going to balance itself out because on one end you have obviously the the increase of on, on poaching for for these reasons that that we're discussing right now but then also um a lot of poaching is going on uh by cartels from asia from vietnam and so on and so forth uh, particularly i think the the rhino horn uh so is that not uh, stopped because of a travel ban? Mm. Or as no, usual, I, those criminals, they they have yeah. their own ways of getting in and out of the country and that's not stopping them. Well, exactly. This is this is the second form of poaching. So so the first form of poaching, really bushmeat poaching, both for local subsistence, but also to provide um, meat for a wider area, so wider community. So people will run, you know, illegal butcheries based on what they've caught. And in other cases, they will be exporting that that meat overseas, which, of course, is, is, is another problem um, that will have been. The, the exportation overseas will probably be reduced for sure. Um, however, the local supply isn't. And I mean, I spoke to a reserve last week and they'd had poachers come in. They, their bushmeat poaching has spiked hugely. I mean, it's virtually zero for some months and now they're having incursions daily. And the last incursion involved the digging up of a warthog um, burrow uh, with dogs. So they took all the warthogs out. So that would have been a, a sounder of probably um, this time of year, probably, you know, four or five piglets and, and and a female, possibly a male in the vicinity, although not very commonly. But that burrow complex is also used by an aardvark, which they haven't seen sign of. So they probably would have taken that. There was a, a very large, a rather majestic python, one of the largest I've ever seen, um, that also lived in that burrow complex, which again, if they'd have found, would have, would have been taken. So that sort of indiscriminate hunting um, entirely understandable at a time of crisis, and all of that is very good meat. Um, I, I can't say whether aardvark's good meat. I'm afraid I've never seen one, let alone eaten one. But certainly, you know that 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 is protein, but it's indiscriminate. So when when you get people coming in night after night, putting on snare lines, just taking out whatever they can, you you start to see a real a real problem. But the second form of poaching, of course, is 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 if you like valuable product poaching. So predominantly, we're talking about rhino horn and, and elephant ivory. And I know in that area, so northwest province. They've already seen spikes in rhino horn poaching in, in, in a number of places above and beyond what they were experiencing. And that is because they're, they're unable to run the number of patrols that they were running. And you're absolutely right. Criminals don't, you know, all of this stuff is illegal anyway. So mm. they were flying. A, a lot of, of horn was being flown out through Johannesburg Airport. They would occasionally find some. Obviously, those international flights are uh, you know, not happening or happening in much fewer numbers. That's potentially going to make it difficult. But we've seen across Africa um, people bringing out things in diplomatic bags um, huh. or under under diplomatic cover. Um, and of course, there's also shipping. And then cartels can store rhino horn. So if it's easy to get right now, but it's difficult to to ship, well, you you focus your activities on what part of your business is thriving, right? And hmm. if 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 it turns out that the you know the pipeline is 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 easily supplied, but you can't quite open the tap at the moment, well, you build up your supplies so that is that is the concern now at the moment it's too early for sure of course to say whether that's whether those concerns are translating and i know lots of areas are are great pains to point out that they are still patrolling heavily i saw a a message from botswana yesterday and namibia you know they're anti-poaching our frontline essential services they're stepping it up they know that there's going to be more pressure on them the problem with rhino of course is is quite special really because quite a large proportion um, potentially a third or even higher of all rhino in the world now are, are held by 
private owners in South Africa on yes. privately owned land. And they don't receive any money really from, from the government to keep the rhino safe. Many of them are spending, you know, 60% of their income on rhino security most of the time anyway. Now, yeah. the, the, the areas that I've been in touch with, um, they have lost all income now, absolutely zero income apart from meat. So they're able still to hunt some animals on their ground and, and sell them. So that's one sort of income. But most of their income is coming from tourists, um, educational tourists in one case and eco-tourists in another, and from hunting um, overseas and domestic. And they, they, you know, that's all basically been cut off. So they are now reliant pretty much on donor funds. So, you know, fundraising from from friends and from from family and and what they can do adopting rhino schemes and stuff just to fuel up their vehicles so <laughs> that is that is the concern that that private rhino owners have had a great success actually in limiting poaching um, mm -hmm. there's far more rhino poached from national parks like the kruger than from private areas but now you know the national parks may be able to keep their levels of anti-poaching more or less the same whereas private areas might not so all of these things are kind of in the mix but at the moment it's too early to say for sure what's really happening but certainly those are the concerns and and you know we, we talked about earlier about sort of tourism being cut off but of course yeah. if you're relying on donor funds as well you know that that's also a problem right now right oh yeah i i heard that that the the ngos and everything every organization who is uh, based on donations Uh, they're struggling as well, and, and and I guess that's related to the uncertainty. So so the people are are less likely to donate money because obviously the unemployment rates are are on yeah. the rise, and and a lot of people lost their job, and a lot of people afraid that they're gonna lose their job, or or so this is like in, in general the economy is going down and that impacts the the conservation it's in it's very interesting how this relates yes yeah it is and and i mean you're absolutely right i, I guess in a time of uncertainty people tend to to look inwards rather than outwards um and that's inevitable and you know it's i don't think anyone can be judged for that however um it it'll be interesting to see how it how it affects across the board because some of the very large NGOs and you know we don't need to name names but but some of the very large and, and, and famous NGOs that that appear to be involved in conservation actually when you dig down um, relatively little I mean some cases you know single figure percentage often less than five um, goes to on the ground conservation work and actually some of the work that is defined as conservation Uh, particularly the larger animal rights organizations really isn't um it's it's orphanages or it's yeah. relocating animals from one place to another it, it, it doesn't really you know what we need is people that buy land and, and protect animals yeah. so it may well be that their reduction of funding has a great influence on their organization but actually doesn't knock on that much into on the ground conservation but then you've got an awful lot of ngos as well um you know things like rhino conservation botswana for example you know they they look after and guard a considerably You know, large proportion of Botswana's rhino. In fact, probably most of them really in the Okavango Delta, and you know they they need a lot of funding to do that. And you know every penny goes to goes to the ground. But but obviously if they're if they're affected by those sorts of donation crises, then suddenly we may see more of an effect. So I think there's going to be a lot of mopping up at the end of this, and a lot of research and interest shown yeah. because because what what has been exposed really really swiftly actually mm -hmm. is how vulnerable these types of conservation models are to external forces. That's what you said If last time. That's, yeah. that's exactly what you yes. said, what, what you said last time, which, which was, by the way, uh, for the first time, really strong argument, like you said, to, to move away uh, conservation 
base basing conservation on hunting and tourism the way it should be moved away and and that was your argument that because it's so fragile which i thought was like well i never thought about that and yeah. fast forward a couple of weeks and <laughs> we see we're seeing exactly that yeah yes unfortunately i, I turned out to be right um but <laughs> but yeah it's um i mean that that's what it exposes and what we'll also see which i think is going to be really interesting is I mean, interesting from an ex external perspective, heartbreaking, of course, as well, if you, if you look at it up close. Mm -hmm. but, but it'll be interesting to see how the different models recover afterwards. So, yeah. for example, um, areas that, that rely largely on tourism and national parks and so on that rely largely on, on pure tourism. Well, are we going to see tourist areas able to recover quite quickly um, compared to hunting areas? And I think my prediction is that areas that rely on hunting will probably recover faster because I think hunters will be more keen to go out. Yes, I think they'll be more keen to show their support um they'll have missed going out hunting you know they, they will have missed it they won't have been able to go out for you know a few months even in the local area you know they'll want to go out they'll they'll want to get you know the, the ground under their boots again and they'll understand the, the the financial problems that these places are under because generally hunters have a very close relationship with the people that they hunt with on the ground yeah you know these are places they go back to they're people that they're in contact with yeah. so i suspect that that hunting will recover a little bit faster than tourism i suspect that in some cases some tourist outfits will be unable to recover hmm. i know of one place near the kruger national park that's basically not going to be open again oh. you know they, they can't survive this they're on the edge uh the, the you know it all depends on the business model and you know you can't sort of generalize but i suspect that that we will see a reduction in those places whether that will uh, have ramifications for conservation is hard to say but the other issue is how fast people will want to go on holiday again yes and obviously that a lot of that will depend on how stable and secure the destinations appear now at the moment we're not seeing a lot of general news coming out of, of southern africa for example but i'm i'm seeing reports you know i'm getting people whatsapping me stuff that suggests that that the police might be being a bit heavy-handed in places that there are definite pockets of unrest i mean the the lockdown that they've imposed is across the country. Well, it's a very different kettle of fish if you're locked down in a nice, expensive house on the, you know, beautiful areas in Johannesburg or out in the country uh -huh. somewhere in your state, right? That's a very different thing to being locked down in one of the townships or whatever. On top of that, the government in South Africa have also banned the sale of alcohol and, and tobacco, cigarettes, across that three-week period, Ooh. which which is a you know, a hell of a thing to do. I mean, if they did that here, I don't know how well that would go down. Mm -hmm. um, well, I do. It would go down extremely poorly. I mean, I think people would ignore it. Um, it would it would cause problems. And I know that it's causing problems down there. Now, whether those problems spill over, there's always, there's always issues anywhere, right? So, you know, we don't want to picking any particular place. But if we start seeing lots of reports about, you know, once, once the media cycle starts getting bored with the current thing, they'll look elsewhere, right? Yeah. And they'll look around and see, well, how is it affecting different parts of the world? If we start seeing reports from countries which are traditional tourist destinations that suggest there's, you know, pockets of civil unrest. Yes. Or if there are indeed pockets of civil unrest, if in some places it causes political instability, which is not entirely impossible because everyone is very critical about how every government around the world has handled this. Mm -hmm. You know, if we start seeing that and then we start seeing foreign Commonwealth advisories, we start seeing people go, well, try and avoid this area because there's riots. Suddenly we might find that 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 tourists who just want to go on safari maybe might go somewhere else that year or they might look to do a different type of holiday so there's also going to be that kind of playing in and it's it's really too early to say but but clearly 
the recovery phase, how we come out of this is is going to be affecting different places in different ways. And, and I guess that's also going to apply to people donating to charities and, and, and NGOs again. You know, when will they feel secure enough to start those direct debits going to, uh-huh. to suddenly go, I'm going to go and give £100 to this, this charity or I'm going to buy these products I don't really need, but they're kind of nice to have because 25% goes to, yeah. you know, rhino conservation or whatever. I guess... Yeah, that that kind of recovery is is hard to predict at the moment. Yeah, and the, I guess you're you're right, and this is also something that we that we touch on on the last on the last episode is that uh, kind of uh, hunters and anglers they're kind of have a one a little bit different mentality. It's 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 more they, they let's say they're more dedicated, and they're more willing to go and and kind of do what they do, and and the other thing is that this is kind of like a much. Um, smaller scale operation i guess because you're taking like 10 anglers or you're taking like you know two hunters it's quite different than you have like a whole bunch of people who are going you know week after week and and even in a situation uh where there's unrest uh you you know i i know that the people are traveling to go fishing or go hunting into destinations who are like usually advised rather not go there um, but this is all about, you know, the, the outfitter knows people who he's supposed to know on the, at the airport and this guy comes in and they just go in and everything is sorted. While this sort of uh, uh, arrangement uh, probably w- would never work if you're bringing group of, of 20 or, or 15 people and, and they're like tourists expecting, uh, you know, luxury and, and being taken care of. So, so that's, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's a very, it's it is a very different business model, and you're right. I mean, in terms of the sort of um, h- how much of an effect local conditions have, it tends to affect hunters less than and anglers less than conventional tourists. You've also got the problem that if you've got, yeah, let's say you've got a client coming in who's going to spend forty thousand, fifty thousand dollars to go hunting for three weeks. You know, that's one person on the ground with a fairly small crew of, of sort of people to support them. Yeah. Um. To 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 get a resort up and running that's used to having say i don't know minimum two three hundred people on board well you know those two three hundred people need almost the same facilities as one person right so they're, they're going to need chefs they're going to need bartenders they're going to need a receptionist cleaners so you know suddenly sort of tooling one of those places up from from stop up up to you know full capacity you know that that trajectory is going to have is going to be problematic in terms of, of of doing it and and making it stable and of course many of those places will have had to have either furlough or, or get rid of staff um which causes economic problems locally which you know we know that that only tends to exacerbate pressures on natural areas because people need you know people can't afford to go and buy wood so they're going to go and chop it down where they can people can't afford to buy meat they're going to go and buy it where they can so you know we've we know all of these things are going to have knock-on effects, so it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. I mean, at the moment, all we can do is keep our fingers crossed that that you know we come out of it for all sorts of reasons, of course. But from a conservation perspective, that that we come out of this in a way that allows all of these different operators to come through. What I mean, we we said earlier, what this really highlights is the fragility. I guess what it also highlights is the importance of having more than one iron in the fire. Oh yeah. You know, um, oh, yeah. Just relying on a particular group in any particular area, suddenly, you know, you're gone. Whereas if you've got a bit of hunting, maybe, I mean, you know, some reserves I know, they don't do a lot of hunting, but I can be pretty sure that as soon as as soon as people are able to move, they're going to be they're going to be asking a few of their hunting clients, you know, do you fancy coming over because they're going to need the, the revenue. Absolutely. You know? So so the, the the I guess the 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 conclusion is that 
the fact that we see wildlife kind of coming out of the woods and and walking around uh, areas where they traditionally were not walking around this is just temporary this doesn't really have anything to do with conservation there's less people less disturbance wildlife is coming in but that's not really any long-term benefit for conservation uh, but but what we're discussing now is impacting conservation in a negative way. So I guess the the overall the, the balance is negative. Uh, for, for yes, I think I think that's probably the case. It's it's difficult to kind of come up with an overall balance. But yeah, I mean when you look at the potential harms, those potential harms are quite great. However, it is kind of interesting. You know, a lot of species will do better from this. You know, birds may nest better. They may produce more offspring. Um, you know, mammals may well do better with, with less. But but what I also think is kind of interesting, and I, I don't know whether this is partly down to sort of an echo chamber that that, that social media and, and what you view online tends to perpetuate, right? But I'm seeing a lot of kind of narratives developing now about how people are feeling like they're missing nature. They're feeling like when all this is over, they're going to be much more engaged with nature. There's this kind of overall arching kind of idea that actually, you know, nature was more important than we than we thought. Now, I guess a potential benefit of all of this is that when we come out, if that's translated into action, of course, you know, <laughs> I mean, everyone's talking about big at the moment. Oh, we're going to see new ways of doing things. We've got a very, very short memory. Mm-hmm. Once life's back to normal, I, 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 uh, I wonder whether those lessons will be learned. Yeah. But maybe we will see this kind of development of people taking nature a bit more seriously or being more involved with it. I, I don't know. I, I agree. I agree with you. I agree with you here that I, I personally, I don't think that we're going to uh, come back better and we learned and Anything and we like we we, we probably just going to resume the business as usual, you know, uh, eight months maximum from 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 when it's over. That's at least my view. Listen, I know you're 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 uh, you don't have a lot of time today, so I want to quickly touch on on one other subject, which is again, I had a number of conversation about this uh, recently, and I'm really curious about your view on it. So there is this uh, narrative developing, uh, and you s- could see quite a few articles uh, published. On, on various newspapers that um, the, the current outbreak of coronavirus is related to biodiversity loss. And in general, it goes like that, that, okay, we're pushing further and further into the areas that were traditionally, you know, people were not there and we're coming into the contact with wildlife even more. And so there is uh, more opportunities for those uh, zootonic diseases coming to people and this is what's happening this is why we have this outbreak because we pushing so hard into the environment and and those those undiscovered areas and to be honest there is a there is something with in it but i have a problem with that uh i i'm not sure if if i agree with that fully because it almost sounds like uh, like the less nature we have and the less animals we have because we're we're destroying the habitat and so on, we're coming more in contact with them. So it, I, I am not sure. People are sure, like, number one, there's really very few really pristine, untouched areas right now. So, so there's nothing new. And obviously people were coming in contact with all those animals before. And... If there is more of these animals, and let's say we're not doing to nature what we're doing right now, there will be more of these animals. So there will be more opportunities to get in touch with those those animals and transmit those diseases. So it, it, it's kind of like a counterintuitive to me. And on top of that, um, again, this is this is an article that I that I read some time ago. Is 
perhaps the problem is not that we are uh, have too much contact with nature. The problem is that we don't have enough contact with wildlife, with nature. We we too much detached from the environment, and 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 our immune system is not what it's supposed to be. Uh, we can't deal with those diseases how it we supposed to be dealing. Uh, plus the the volume and the mass transport and the people who can be you know one day in China and another day in New York and the third day in London. This is really a problem. Uh, and, and maybe it's not that related to biodiversity loss and the fact that we're pushing in those areas that we've never pushed before, allegedly. So I am not sure if I agree with, with that argument, although I appreciate that, that it can be true. So I'm, I'm curious, what's your view on that? Yeah, I think, I think well, I mean, I guess, first of all, in, in the past, so if we, if we look in the deep past, um, we, we wouldn't necessarily know if a zoonotic disease broke out somewhere in the middle of nowhere and never took hold anywhere else. You know, maybe maybe in, in you know, past literature of some far-flown, some far-flung place in some far-flung era, there was a mysterious disease that, that wiped out, you know, all the old people or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was just put down to we don't know. But because people didn't travel as far, and they didn't travel as frequently, it just didn't have any chance to go, or because that disease was particularly um, unpleasant. So, I mean, if we, if we think about Ebola, for example, Ebola is a terrible disease, awful, but it has one thing going for it, at least for the wider world, is that it's so bad, it kills people before it gets much of a chance to, to get a hold, and it produces symptoms which are extremely obvious. So, consequently, yes. people can be isolated. So, it causes huge problems locally but it doesn't go anywhere um you know whereas what we've got with with covid19 is is almost the exact opposite it takes a while to come on for a lot of people it doesn't seem to have much of an effect some people are even asymptomatic whilst they pass it on and other people get absolutely hammered by it and and that's what we're seeing so it could well be that in the past something like this would have broken out somewhere and because people didn't travel around it caused a local problem and got lost in the midst of time but of course we have a lot of zoonotic diseases um animal flu anthrax um tuberculosis, bovine TB anyway, brucellosis, dengue fever, Ebola, um, cephalitis, uh, giardiitis, hepatitis. I've just got a list of them up here. Listeria infection, Lyme disease, malaria. You know, these are all zoonoses, right? Yeah. Um, psittacosis, rabies, ringworm, Rocky Mountain <laughs> spotted fever, swine flu, toxoplasmosis, West Nile virus, right? But, you know, th- th- this is not an uncommon thing. And and at some point they have been able to spread. So, you know, are we, are we seeing just the influence? Are we seeing just a natural regression? Yeah, this is the latest zoonosis, you know, the long line of them. I mm-hmm. think probably that's, that's, that's possibly the case. I think that's exacerbated by the way that we live i suppose linked to kind of what we were talking about earlier about sort of unfit for purpose mm-hmm. you know, the way that our, our modern life lives provides an ideal opportunity for these things to spread um, but in terms of our, our connection with the natural world well we don't have any immune response to to covid19 it's a novel infection you know we develop it by getting it so that wouldn't have any effect so the sort of you know the, if you like the hygiene hypothesis the idea that we're not challenging our immune system actually doesn't stand up to a lot of um, scrutiny when you dig down into the different parts of it, although it is relevant to, to some areas, that's that's probably not the case either because it's these these are novel things. Um, you know, we 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 don't generally eat um, unusual animals these days. You know, most people's diet is fairly constrained probably compared to what it was so we, we, yep. you could argue that we have less of a chance you know most people don't handle wildlife you see something dead you don't pick it up and wonder if there's something useful to be had off it uh-huh. whereas that would have been a, would, would have been the case you know not that long ago so we, we could argue that actually much much less likely to to do this but of course yeah we are um we are advancing into the into the, the world into the natural world more i mean it's interesting that that china 
um, you know, comes up for this because I was talking to someone a couple of years ago, probably three or four years ago now, because they were finding more and more people in China were getting killed by by giant hornets. So the, the sort of oriental giant hornet, the Vespa, Vespa mandrinia, huge thing, biggest social wasp in the world, massive, fascinating, lives in large you know, colonies of like 50 or 60. Um, the problem is they're very large. They're very large venom glands, very, very large stings. And, you know, if you get nailed by 10 of them, then, you know, you're pretty much a goner. <laughs> and some people are allergic to even one. They're very, very painful and, and very serious. And, and they were finding that there were more and more deaths, you know, went up from a couple to sort of 20 or 30 a month. And, you know, what was the reason? And the reason that was coming out was because of the the massive engineering and building projects that were going on in China, the sort of okay. expansion of cities that, that most people have never heard of. I mean, there are cities in China that are, you know, the size of London that, that, that most people have never never heard of. We, we, you know, our knowledge of Chinese geography generally across the world, I'm, I'm generalizing, but in general, people, you know, we're not particularly au fait with these sorts of yeah. things. And, and actually, there were very big expansions. And the argument was that the cities were rapidly expanding into areas that were previously pretty much uninhabited and people were coming into contact more with these insects and that's what was causing the spike in deaths i suppose that could be an argument for this except that we don't know i mean currently so i looked this up just before i came on with you mm-hmm. you know that currently we don't know exactly where it came from we know that that it probably originated in bats we think pangolins may have been involved somewhere but actually that's starting to look more shaky now at the moment we don't really know exactly where it came from so it's a bit it's it's tricky to speculate but but i would say looking at the long list of xenoses that, that have affected us you know in a sense this is not particularly unusual you know it's a new one that's come along and, and we're going to deal with it hopefully um but yeah it's that what well, one thing's for sure there is going to be a <laughs> a sort of, if you like, a, a scientific research literature effect of COVID nineteen for many years to come, as people, you know, dig into this more and more, because this is a real, you know, this is a global thing. It, it, SARS was kind of a global thing, but I don't think people were that. They were worried about it, but it never felt, yeah, never really. It never was at the other doorsteps. Yeah. Whereas this now it is global. You know, this is a pandemic and, and it's the first one in the modern era that we've really had a, a handle on. You know, this isn't like plague in the Middle Ages where, you know, we didn't have the Internet. Right. This is suddenly something where everyone can be updated with everything. You know, I can look on the computer and get the latest death figures from anywhere in the world. Yeah. You know, this is and it really heightens things, of course, as well. But it shows just how interconnected the planet is now. And and, and that's something which has influence on, on conservation, too. You know, this interconnectivity, this this idea of of using wildlife suddenly people are up in arms that people are eating all these animals well you know that's the resources they have if you can do it sustainably is that a problem yeah it starts to bring all these kind of issues up so it's yeah it's it's interesting but but i guess to go back to your original question yeah i'm I'm not sure i think i think yeah we we need to wait really until we find out much more about about it but i i think the the enhanced connectivity of the of, the, of the, the human world now is undoubtedly a big a big factor in this. You know, this this was able to to get a hold globally in a way that, that no other disease recently has been able to. Exactly. Okay, uh, Adam, listen, I know you're stuck for time, so I'm going to let you go. Uh, thanks a lot Thank for you. your time. Thanks for, for sh- sharing with us this information. And uh, 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 everybody should pre-order your book. And uh, thanks a lot. Brilliant. Thanks, Tommy.
You just listened to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. I invite you to take a moment and listen to one of the most recent episodes. I'm sure you'll enjoy it.